All right, well, we are here in week three, right in the middle of our series, beginning in the end, studying through the book of Revelation. And I hope this series has been helpful and hopeful and encouraging. And let's be honest, a lot of us, I don't think we realize that Revelation could be hopeful or encouraging because there's so much trouble and there's so much confusion. And what we said from the beginning is that while Revelation has a lot of trouble, Revelation isn't ultimately about the trouble. Revelation is ultimately about Jesus. The way we said it from the very beginning is that our God, Jesus, is the beginning before our beginning, and he's the one who will be seen supreme after our world ends. That our God is the beginning before our beginning, and he'll be standing supreme after our world ends. And because of that, we can experience his grace and his peace in the middle of the trouble, in the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the confusion, in the middle of the trials, in the middle of everything that life would throw at us. We can experience his grace and peace. That trials and tribulations and everything that comes in, in the book of Revelation and everything that comes in, in life should not fill us with worry and fear and anxiety. It should fill us with grace and peace because our God is the God who is the beginning before our beginning and the one who's standing supreme after our world ends. Then last week we looked to the events of the tribulation and in the middle of the tribulation we were reminded that God can be trusted in our trouble because his intention is and always has been our redemption. To bring us to new life, to bring us to relationship with him that leads to new life. That in our trouble, in our chaos, even in the trouble and what seems like chaos that God sometimes causes and brings about in our lives, that his intention has always always been and will always be your redemption. And so you can trust God in our trouble. And because God can be trusted, he can be trusted as our eternal judge, we learn. We learn that God can be trusted with our with our momentary uh, trust. He, he, we, he's worthy of our momentary trust. He's worthy of, of our everyday faithfulness. And he's worthy of our ultimate devotion, that God is worthy, that Jesus is worthy, because the one who laid down his life for your life is worthy of your and my whole life. Now today, moving into the new content, today we're going to talk about one of the most fear-inducing characters in the entire account of the end of the world, the Antichrist. And to start with, I actually want to read all of the verses in the book of Revelation that talk about and use the word Antichrist. There, I did it. Nice short sermon today, right? Yay, Chris, we're going to pack up early. Everybody can go about their bit. Like, that's, you're like, wait, wait, wait. That, that's all the verses? Yeah, that's all the verses. There, there are actually no verses in the entire book of Revelation that use the word Antichrist. So you might be going, wait, 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 what? Because I've heard so much talk about, you know, when the end of the world comes, there's going to be an Antichrist. Like, how, like, where does that come from? Here's the thing. The word Antichrist isn't in Revelation, but the idea and the concept and the person are definitely there. If you wonder where the word comes from, interestingly enough, the word actually comes from John who wrote Revelation because John also wrote a gospel account of Jesus' life and he wrote three other letters to churches that he influenced. And so in 1 John 2, verse 18 and 22, it says, Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming. And already many such antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that the last hour has come. And he says in verse 22, and who is a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ, anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an antichrist, is someone working against the work of Jesus Christ. In 2 John verse 1, chapter 1, verse 7, he wrote, I say this because many deceivers have gone out into the world. They deny that Jesus Christ came in a real body. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Such a person is someone who is working against the mission of Jesus Christ. And then Paul, like John would do in Revelation, his letter to the Thessalonian church, he wrote of the antichrist without using the word antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians, he called him the man of lawlessness. In verse 3, he says this, don't be fooled by what they say, 
For that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. And from these verses, here's something that we, we understand, and we're going to pick it up in Revelation in just a moment. But from these verses, we understand that the early church believed that as long as the church existed, there would be influences standing opposed to the things of God and the people of God, standing opposed to the work of God, the things that God wanted to bring about in the world, and standing opposed to the people of God, the church of God that Jesus died for. This is one of those realities that I don't think we like to admit as often as we should. None of us live Live in a neutral, peaceful world. We live in the middle of a spiritual battlefield. That the second you put your trust in Jesus, unknowingly, you gained an while you gained a savior and you gained salvation and you gained grace and you gained peace, you also gained an enemy that you did not know that you signed up for. That every second, every second of our lives, every moment of our lives, every day of our lives is lived in a non-neutral world. We are living in the middle of a battlefield. And the early church and their leaders were well aware of this reality, that in their here and now reality, in their here and in their momentary life, there were human and spiritual forces standing opposed to the church of Jesus Christ, that in the future, there would be human and spiritual forces standing opposed to the church of Jesus Christ. And at the very end, all of the force and strength that the enemy has to offer would be unleashed against the things and the people and the work of God, that there were and there would always be people and forces standing against the people of God. So the question that we should ask as we come to the book of Revelation and see this portion and this personification of evil in the book of Revelation is simply this. How should we respond when those who oppose the things of God come to power? How do Jesus followers respond when people who come and forces who oppose the things of God come to power, when people who stand against the things of God are in control over the, the world and in control in the world? How do we respond? How should we respond when people who oppose the things of God come to power? Do we respond with fear? Do we respond with worry? Do we respond with anxiety? Do we respond with power and we're going to rise up to meet them? Do we respond by fighting the power with our own power and with our own strength? Or will we choose something better. And so today in Revelation chapter 12, we are reintroduced to a figure that has always been in the picture from the very beginning, the devil himself. In Revelation chapter 12, he's reintroduced as the dragon. He's reintroduced as a dragon. Maybe in fact, in fact while, you're, while you're watching right now, you may want to type in the chat, the dragon, just because that's a really cool sounding thing to type, like the dragon, even though it's about the devil. Like, the dragon. This chapter, chapter 12, doesn't so much seem to talk about something that will happen in the future, but seems to be an interlude talking about something that has already happened. The battle that has been going on for the soul of humanity and for the soul of the world from the very beginning between God and the devil. So we're reminded that the dragon has always been the enemy of God and the enemy of humanity. That when Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, the dragon actively fought and attempted to stop God's plan to bring about salvation for all mankind. And he was defeated there. He was defeated at the cross. He was defeated. Every, he has been defeated by our God every single time. And in the last words of his reintroduction in Romans in Revelation chapter 12, right before we jump into Revelation 13, we're told this, then the dragon took his stand on the shore beside 
the sea. And now we're about to find out about what Revelation calls the beast or what most of the New Testament would call the Antichrist. Here's what we're told. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns. And written on each head were names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. Now, here we are introduced to the second portion of what we will come to call the unholy trinity. In the unholy trinity, the dragon or Satan is the counterfeit God, the Father. This beast rising up out of the sea is the counterfeit Christ. And we should just make sure we understand something about about our enemy here. The best hell has to offer is a forgery of heaven come to earth. The best, like the, the best thing that, that hell can dream up is a forgery, is a cheap knockoff of what God sent to earth when he sent his son to die for you and to die for me. Satan returns to his old bag of tricks, lies and deception, forgery, attempting to make people believe that the one they've always been searching for has finally come to them. And so the imagery here is incredibly symbolic. He has an appearance like a leopard, feet of a bear, mouth of a lion. The leopard represented the Greek empire and their swiftness and destructive power. The bear represented the Persian empire with its great strength and devouring power. The mouth of a lion symbolized Babylon with its majesty, power, and ferocity. And so here we have a person or or perhaps a government with the speed and destructive capacity of Alexander the Great, the strength and the devouring force of Xerxes and Cyrus, and the strength, majesty, and authority of Nebuchadnezzar the Great of ancient Babylon. And I'm just telling you, for a world that looks for strength, might, forcefulness, and charismatic personalities, this is an attractive package. Going on in verse 3, I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. Allegiance. Gave allegiance to the beast. They worshiped the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worshiped the beast. Who is as great as the beast, they exclaimed. Who is able to fight against him? Now, again, you might, might have picked up on this. Here, we literally have a fake or a mock resurrection. He's wounded beyond recovery, but he recovers. He's wounded beyond recovery, meaning he's wounded to death, but he comes back to life. Again, the best hell has to offer is a forgery of God's greatest work on the earth, of God's greatest work on behalf of humanity. Once again, the devil reaches into his old box of tools and he says, I'm going to pull out deception. I'm going to pull out mockery. I'm going to pull out falsehood. I'm going to give them a forgery of what God has done, deception to garner attention and devotion. It's the devil's oldest trick in the book. Verse five, it goes on to say this, then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God and he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. This is the man of lawlessness Paul wrote about in 2 Thessalonians. This is how a world leader acts when they view themselves above the law and accountable to no one. You want to know why it's called the man of law, why he's called the man of lawlessness? Because he views himself as above the law. He makes the laws, therefore he's above the law. He is accountable to nothing and accountable to no one. Verse 7, we're told this. 
And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. Interestingly, in Revelation chapter 7, we're told that those whose names are written in the lamb's book of life are marked and sealed by God. And that those whose names were not marked and sealed by God are led away and are deceived and will be deceived by the beast into worship of the beast. Then verse 9 goes on. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Anyone who is destined for prison will be taken to prison. Anyone destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. This means, this means, John spells this out incredibly clear for us. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. The ruler of the world turns on the people of God. This is the least surprising and most predictable thing imaginable, right? What's most dangerous to a false kingdom? Those who belong to a real kingdom. What's most dangerous to a kingdom built on lies and deception? Those who believe in absolute truth and genuine power. So anyone who worships the God of truth is viewed as dangerous and we must deal with them swiftly. In John's world, this was embodied by the Roman emperors who demanded worship and participation in empire worship. Anyone who refused to bow and declare Caesar is Lord was a threat to the empire and was to be dealt with swiftly. And whether John was looking at his immediate here and now, or into our future, or into the end of the world future, John spelled out as clear as possible what was required as a Jesus follower when any of us would face persecution or pushback for our faith. And here's what John said we all need to be ready to do. God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. We, re we endure persecution patiently and we remain faithful. We endure persecution, and we remain faithful. We endure persecution, and we remain faithful. Very few of us are good at enduring, right? Very few of us are good at enduring. Enduring means that we continue to choose the same path, knowing that the path is difficult and bumpy. I endure because of what I know is on the other side of my endurance. I endure because I know who is on the other side of my endurance. I endure because I know on the other side of my endurance, there is someone and there is something waiting for me. And I love that John tells us to endure patiently. He doesn't say endure angrily. He doesn't say endure while complaining about it on Facebook all day. He doesn't say endure while retweeting things that agree with your side of the opinion. He said endure patiently. And patiently does not mean that we do nothing, but chances are for some of you today, and I'm, I hope I'm speaking to some of you today, Endure patiently probably means that some of the things that are your natural responses, you need to lay aside and endure patiently and allow God to work on your behalf. John would say you're to endure patiently. And then the second thing that we're all called to do is to remain faithful. We remain faithful because following Jesus has never been and will never be about whether things are going well in this life or not. If things are going great, I follow Jesus, but I wasn't following Jesus because Jesus made things in my life great. I follow him because he died for me. He died to give me new life. He died to make me new and to make me whole and to bring me the healing that no one and nothing else could offer. I follow him not because of what he has done for me and not because of what my life looks like right now, but I follow me because he has the life that I want. He brings the new life that he only he can bring. I want people to look at my life and see this 
this is a person that loves Jesus and is committed to Jesus and has been changed by Jesus and they remain faithful to Jesus. And so if it costs me something, I follow Jesus because Jesus is worth any price. And if it even costs me my life, as John talks about in the previous verses, if it costs me prison, if it costs me my life, I'm willing to lay my life down following Jesus because if I lay my life down following Jesus, my faith will become sight. What what I have believed in my heart, I will see with my eyes as I see my Savior face to face. I follow faithfully. I remain faithful even if it costs me everything. That's what you're called to. You're called to endurance and you're called to faithfulness. You're called to endurance and you're called to faithfulness. Then it says this, Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth. He had two horns like those of a lamb, but he spoke with the voice of a dragon. Here we have the counterfeit prophet, the counterfeit spirit, the unholy spirit. This is the third member of the unholy trinity. We have the dragon, the unholy, the unholy God, the Father, the, the unholy Father. We have the, the, the first beast that comes out of the sea is the counterfeit Christ. And here we have the counterfeit prophet or the counterfeit spirit. We are told he is like a lamb, meaning he's more gentle in his tactic than the first beast, or maybe more gentle appearance than the first beast, but he still speaks like a dragon. He still speaks like a dragon. We're told he exercised all the authority of the first beast, and he required all the earth and its people to worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. He did astonishing miracles, even making a fire flash down to earth from the sky while everyone was watching. Now, As the Holy Spirit's job is to point people to Jesus, this unholy prophet, this false prophet's job and entire mission on the earth is to point people to the worship of the first beast, which ultimately leads to worship of the dragon. And there's an interesting note here. In previous chapters, when God sends fire from heaven, people hide and curse God. When the false prophet brings false fire from the sky, people applaud and cheer and recognize the one that he is pointing to. It's an interesting note here, and this is a whole different sermon, and so I'm just going to say this and, 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 and move on. But there is something in our broken humanity that finds it easier to accept the counterfeit of hell than to accept the reality of heaven. There is something in my brokenness and in your brokenness and in the brokenness of all humanity that makes it easier. We have a much easier time. It's much less difficult for us in our broken humanity to accept the falsehoods and to accept the brokenness and the counterfeits of hell than it is to accept the realities and the real things that Jesus and that heaven have to offer us. Verse 14 tells us this, and with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belonged to this world. He ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast who was fatally wounded and then come back to life. He was then permitted to give life to this statue so that it could speak. Then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. We no longer have the first beast actually showing up physically anywhere, which is kind of an interesting thing. We have a statue commemorating the first beast and his coming back to life. Now, this is an interesting thing. We have a statue coming back because, wow, this guy was healed and brought back to life, but we don't have him showing up anywhere in person anymore. So was he really all that healed after all? Was he really resurrected after all? Why do we have a statue commemorating him that's now been animated by, the, by, the, by this false spirit, by this false prophet? Why do we have that going on? And why is an animated robotic voice speaking, speaking on behalf of this first beast who has been healed and been brought back to life and telling people that it must worship, that they, that they must worship it? 
This is, this is coercion. This is force at the, at, the, at the highest levels. You worship the empire. You worship the emperor. You worship the beast or else. And so as, as, as we near the end of this, this chapter and the telling of the beasts and what they will be like and what they will do, as we looked at this unholy trinity, we look and we go, well, what the heck is going on here? Why would anyone fall for that? Why would anyone, like, why would anyone follow a leader like that? Why would anyone worship a leader like that who, who demands, why would any, anyone worship a man who demands worship? Why, like, why would anyone follow that leader? What's so interesting about this, about this portion of, of, of Scripture is that almost every Bible commentator that I have read comes to the same conclusion regarding these beasts, regarding the Antichrist, regarding the beast from the sea, regarding the beast that was to be worshipped. And they came to this conclusion. The beast isn't actually a false messiah. The beast is the messiah that humanity always wanted. I chew on something for a while, chew on that. The very reason that people rejected Jesus will be the same reason that people will embrace this man. Jesus refused to play by the rules and the methods of this world while this beast, the unholy trinity, the antichrist forces of this world have always and will always play by the rules and the methods and the messages that the world has always Recognize, And here's something we need to understand. A world that rejects God's ways will readily give allegiance to forces that embody the world's ways. This is the most predictable thing imaginable. Why would they follow this guy? They will follow this guy. The world will follow this guy. People who do not recognize Jesus and have not followed Jesus will follow this man, will follow his ways, because they're the ways the world has always worked. They're the ways the world has always recognized. They're the ways that the world thinks works everywhere and for all of Time. And if you're wondering what methods and, 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 and messages and, and, and approaches and ways this guy embraces and this, this maybe government, his government embraces, here's the things that you see in him and in his government and in his leadership that you've seen across every terrible empire throughout human history. You see control, you see peace through force, you see deception, and you see manipulation. Let's talk about control. You see control. There is a centrally controlled government, centrally, con centrally controlled economics and centrally controlled centrally controlled religion. There's one man at the center and he answers to nothing and he answers to no one. And so when he says go, everyone goes. And when he says move, everyone moves. When he says bow, everyone bows. There's one man at the center controlling everything and controlling everybody. There's a sense of control. There's peace through force. It's, it's play by our rules and we can have peace. And if you won't play by our rules, you won't play. You will go away. Those who won't recognize the control are imprisoned. They're sent away. They're threatened or even killed. You have deception. The optics matter a lot. Here's what we show you, but here's what we do. Here's what you see. Here's what's happening behind the scenes. It looks great, but it's not great behind the surface, behind the scenes. It looks like a lamb, but it sounds like a dragon. Oh, he was healed and he was resurrected, but why is he not showing up anymore? And why is there now a statue? It's the optics that matter. It's deception that matters. Here's what we show you. So here's what we can get away with. Here's what we tell you, but here's what we're really doing behind the scenes. And finally, you have manipulation. You have staged miracles. You have false fire from heaven. You have an animated statue that demands worship. I mean, this is falsehood. This is manipulation. This is false power that can't stand real power. False power. 
manipulated miracles, staged miracles, staged performances to get people to feel and think a certain way in order to get them ultimately to bow to the beast, to worship the one behind the beast, to worship the dragon. This has been true about, about, about every empire throughout the world's history, that, that every single one of them has used control and peace through force and deception and manipulation to accomplish their own ends and their own means. And in some ways, I feel like John may just want to warn the church and send a warning to the church as he sent this letter to the churches, as he's warning them about what will come in the end of the days and the tribulation that they will endure and the forces that will stand opposed to them. I think there is still a reminder that he wants to give to us today that what What's true of the world must never be true of God's church. That what's true of the world, that what's true of the ways of the world must be never be true of the ways of God's church. We must never embrace the ways of the world as we live and we lead God's church. It must never be a culture of celebrity with no accountability. We should always seek unity, but never peace through force or intimidation. We should, it, we should never put on a happy show when what's behind the scenes is rotten. And we should never be about manipulating people for the benefit of, of an organization. Like we, we, just don't, we just don't do that. That, that John, I think, as, as much as he's warning them about opposing forces that will come at the church, I think he also, if he was looking into today in the world that we live in, he would say, hey, to the church, it should never be true. The, th the things that are true of this world should never be true about you. The things that are true about the way the world operates should never be true about the way that you operate. You resist and you push back on all the things that are the ways of the world and you follow Jesus as the church. You remain faithful. You endure persecution patiently. You follow Jesus and you remain faithful to the things of God. You remain faithful to the work of God and you remain faithful to doing it in the ways of God. And then John gives us one final, one final picture here at, at, at the end of this chapter. But he says, he required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead, and no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is six, six. Six. Now, John's here and now audience knew exactly what John was talking about. The seven churches that John wrote to all lived in Roman-controlled cities and Roman-controlled economies. And each and every person reading this, city, this letter lived in a city where under Nero's and under Domitian's and under different empires of rule and reign, in order to participate in the economy and in the society in any way, you had to acknowledge and pledge allegiance to empire and emperor. To empire and emperor. But here's the thing. These were forces that stood opposed to the things of God. As we talked about before, these were the forces that embodied control and peace through force and deception and manipulation. These were, these were the forces that embodied the ways of the world. And people were told, if you want to, if you want to participate in, in the economy, if you want to participate in society, you have to acknowledge that the ways of the world are winning. You had to receive their mark of allegiance in order to participate in their economy and their society. And every believer faced a question. Will I declare Caesar is Lord in order to participate in Caesar's economy and Caesar's world, in Caesar's society, when I know that Jesus is Lord and I live in God's 
world. This was the question that every believer in those seven cities faced that, that John wrote to. Every believer faced that question. And so John's question to his readers is simply this. Who is your Lord? Who is your Lord? Who do you belong to? Whose world do you live in? Who is your Savior? Who is your Lord? Who has your allegiance? Is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord of your life? And he would say to every one of them, like he says to you and I today, you must choose. Whose world do you live in? Who has your allegiance? Who do you belong to? And But in typical John and Apocalypse fashion, there is an off in the future as well, saying one day at the end of days, believers will face that same intense pressure of allegiance. And here's the thing, I am old enough now to have lived through plenty of things that might be the mark to know that there are some things that bring up questions and make us wonder about technology, about medical advancement or financial changes. And we wonder and we ask these questions like, well, can people be tricked into receiving this future mark? Can people, will people be tricked and deceived in this, in this kingdom of deception? Can people actually be tricked into receiving this mark of the beast? And to calm those fears, one of the things that I believe John says incredibly clear about the future is that people will not be tricked. I have 100% confidence in saying that. People may be coerced and people will be pressured, but no one will be tricked. Everyone will know exactly what the choice they are being presented with is the mark, to say it this way, the mark will be a clear display of allegiance to the beast and his kingdom. Again, people will be coerced into that allegiance. People may be pressured into that allegiance, but no one will be tricked. This is a clear display of allegiance to the beast and to his kingdom, to the ultimately to the dragon and to his kingdom, to the world and the ways of the world. In John's time and in the time John spoke of in the future, the mark of the beast is a clear symbol of allegiance to the beast. And John says, whether it's in this present time or in the time at the end of the world, there will be one clear question that every single one of us must answer. And here's the question, where does your allegiance lie? Where does your allegiance lie? Who has your allegiance? Who has your best? Who gets the best of you and leave the rest of it for the world? Like, who gets you? Who has you? Who owns you? Who owns your life? Who has your life? Who or what has your allegiance? Where does your allegiance lie? To, to, say, it, to say it this way, who and what gets the best of your time and your energy and your attention and your devotion and your affection? And if the answer to that question is that anything or anyone less than Jesus has the best of your time and your affection and your devotion and your, and your energy and your time, something less than God, less than the best, has your attention, has your allegiance, and it is time to repent. We could ask the questions this way. Who or what is your first priority? Who or what is your first priority? What's the thing you reach for first in the morning? What's the thing, the first thing that's on your mind when you get up in the morning? What's the first thing, like, what's the thing that you have to do every day or you, or you will have accomplished nothing? What or who is your first priority? And then secondly, who or what is the final authority? Like, if there is someone other than God that says, go and you go, 
you have given authority and final authority to something other than God. If there was someone other than God who has so much influence in your life that you would say, man, like, I, would, I, would, I would forsake God to make sure that this relationship stays on track. You have given ultimate and final authority to something less than God and it will not sustain your life. Where does your allegiance lie? For some of us, our allegiance lies to comfort. For some of us, it lies with our finances. For some of us, it's our career. For some of us, it's a relationship. For some of us, it's our family. And as good as families and as good as relationships and as good as financial security and as good as a great career are, they are not meant to support the weight of your life and they are not meant to have your ultimate allegiance. They are not meant to be your first priority. They are not meant to be the ultimate authority. And when they are, your life will eventually begin to crumble and fall because they cannot sustain the weight of your life. There is only one who can. His name is Jesus. He came to live for you. He came to die for you. He rose from the dead from you. He rose with a real resurrection. He rose with real life. He died a real death. He died for your, a real death for your real sin and for my real sin and for your real past and my real past. And he rose from the dead bringing you you real life and lasting life forever. And if anything or anyone else has your allegiance, it is time to turn from that and turn to God. It is time to turn away from the lesser things that you have given your allegiance to, the lesser people that you have given your allegiance to, the lesser career, the lesser finances, the lesser people, the lesser relationships, the lesser anything. And to turn once again to where your allegiance lies with your heavenly Father. If anything less than Jesus is your first priority, it's time to get your priorities straight. If anything less than Jesus is the ultimate authority, it's time to get authority straightened out in your life. And to decide today and decide for the rest of your life who is the first priority and who is the final priority authority. Who has the final word in your life and in my life? One, one, one last thought. I think, I think the number six here, as, as, as John writes, I think the number here is, is more, the number six is actually more important than the number six, six, six. See, as we talk about this unholy trinity, we need to be reminded that in biblical symbol, symbolism, number six is the number of a man. Seven is the number of God and God's completion. John is reminding us that this is the number of a man. He actually says it incredibly clearly. This is the number of a man. And it may be three men, but they're still men. And at the end of the day, men are not God. The world is not God. The world of men is not the world of God. The ways of men are not the ways of God. Men can offer the best that men can have to offer, but men can never offer what God offers. They cannot offer salvation. They cannot offer real hope. They cannot offer real life. They cannot offer lasting peace. To put it this way, a six can never be a seven. And so we here we have three sixes. We have a six and a six and a six, but we don't have any sevens. See, the, 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 the Trinity, the, that God's completion, that number would be seven, seven, seven. God the Father, seven. God the Son, seven. God the Spirit, seven. And, 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 as, and as powerful as this force would be, 
John, I think, in this moment, made more than anything, instead of pointing us towards some future reality, he's pointing us to the ever-present reality that a six can never be a seven. And so the dragon is a six, but he'll never be a seven. And the beast is a six, but he'll never be a seven. And the false prophet is a six, but he'll never be a seven. And your phone is a six, but it'll never be a seven. And your career is a six, but it'll never be a seven. And your cable news is a six, but it'll never be a seven. And your job and your finances and that relationship, it's a six, but it will never be a seven. And that YouTube channel and that podcast, it's a six, but it will never be a seven. And the approval of your father, it's a six, but it'll never be a seven. And the approval of your mother, it's a six, but it'll never be a seven. See, the best that man can offer is the ways of the world, and they will never match up to the ways of God, which is why we remain faithful to God. A six can never be a seven, and a six can never offer what a seven can offer. And so the question that I want to ask us all as we close today is simply this. Why would we ever give our allegiance to a six when we can give our allegiance and give our lives to a seven? Why would we ever give our time to a six when we can give it to a seven? Why would we ever give our attention to a six when we can give our attention to a seven? Why would we ever give our devotion to a six when we can give our attention to a seven? I refuse. I refuse. This is the decision I would hope we would all make today. I refuse to put my hope in a six when I know there is a seven. His name is Jesus. He's the light of the world. He's the hope of the world. He's the peace of the world. He's the one who can bring something and give you something that the world cannot give you. He can bring you salvation and new and lasting life. He's the beginning before my beginning. He's the end after the world ends. And he'll be standing every moment with me and with you in between. Let's never settle for a six when there's a seven. Let's never settle for the ways of the world when there's God's ways for the world. He's the beginning before our beginning. He's the one standing with us every single moment of every single day. And he's the one who's standing supreme in the end. His name is Jesus. Let's give our allegiance to him. Let's make him our first priority and our final authority. And when we do that, we'll find the hope and the peace and the life that he has for us, which is far better than anything anyone else has to offer you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace for us. Thank you that what you have for us is real and lasting and genuine and true. And while the world offers us deception and the world offers us division and the world offers us falsehood and the world offers us forgeries of what you have to offer, thank you that you offer us something real, something lasting, something brand new in our hearts and in our lives for the world. So God, I simply pray today that you would give us the wisdom to recognize anything in our lives that has taken our allegiance away from you. Anything in our lives that has become our first priority. Anything in our lives that's become the final authority. God, I pray that you'd give us wisdom to see it and you would give us the courage to move it out of first place and to return once again to you in first place as the first priority and as the final authority in our lives and in our world. God, give us wisdom to know what to do with what we've just heard. Give us the courage to return our allegiance to you today and every day for the rest of our lives. Help us to love you. Help us to trust you. Help us to follow you. Help us to ultimately be marked by you.
and our allegiance to you. We love you, God, and we pray this all in Jesus' strong name. Amen.